So much of a leader's credibility stems from trusting their judgment. So trusting a woman's judgment as a top decision maker as much as a man's would seem to be essential if we're judging their leadership in the same way. So do we? And if we don't, what can we do about it? Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Well, welcome to this episode of Grit in the Oyster. It's my real pleasure today to be speaking to Therese Houston. Therese is a cognitive scientist at Seattle University with a PhD in cognitive psychology from Carnegie Mellon University. And she's the author of three books. Her last book, How Women Decide, was named a summer reading title by Oprah.com, and the New York Times called it Required Reading on Wall Street. Therese has also written for The Guardian, The New York Times, and Harvard Business Review. So there is no one better to help women navigate their decision-making landscape. Welcome, Therese. Oh, thank you so much, Penny. It's a real treat to be here. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. And tell us your story. How did you get to be where you are today? Well, I didn't start out interested in gender. It, it actually, when I, for much of my career, it felt very gendered to study gender, so I stayed away yeah. from it. But I did start out interested in decision making. Um, so mine is a really good story for anyone who's having trouble finding their calling. If you have any listeners in that camp, you, I yeah. hopefully my story will help them. We have plenty. Great. Yes. <laughs> so my interest in decision making started when I was still an undergraduate at university. I really wanted to study, or at least I had a little curiosity, I should say. I had a curiosity about decision making. And I, I was in a small university and I approached the one professor in the psychology department who studied decision making. And I asked her about her research, thinking perhaps I could work with her. And she studied how students decided what to major in, what course of study to take. And, and I'll be honest, Penny, I thought that sounded so boring. I, I wanted to study big life decisions like whether to get married and when to change yeah. careers and whether to have children. Like I wanted those big decisions. And and I, I even knew even in my early 20s that, that what you decide to study at university doesn't have much impact on the rest of your life, right? I could see that. <laughs> so I didn't want to, I decided, you know, I had this decision to make myself. Did I want to study something that would seemed like it would bore me or did i want to wait and i decided i would wait and i think that's true for many people in their 20s they're not sure what they want to do yeah. but they're pretty sure what they don't want to do right they they know which avenues they don't want to pursue so i decided to wait and then i i went to graduate school in psychology as you said and and now I had several professors who studied decision making and so i i talked with each of them about their research and they basically gave people puzzles in the lab and studied how people solve those puzzles and how they made decisions about what moves to make next on each puzzle. And so again, I had this decision to make, did I want to do something that 
sounded like it would bore me or did I want to wait? And I decided again to wait. And I studied, instead I studied multitasking in graduate school, um, attention Uh and how people multitask, because that seemed real world. That seemed like it had real life application. Mm -hmm. And and then I got busy with my career. Um, I finished my PhD in psychology. I did a postdoc in neuroscience. I went and became a university professor. I then moved into coaching and consulting, basically helping people make decisions, but I wasn't studying it actively. I was, I was helping people with their everyday decisions, but I wasn't actually studying it as a researcher. And then I got to my forties and I, I realized if, if, if I want to study decision-making, I I better get on it. (laughs) You know, you know, (laughs) I think that happens for a lot of us as we approach midlife, we realize that the opportunity might pass us by. And so I decided I would write a book about decision-making And I wanted to write a book about the common mistakes and misconceptions we have about Mm decision-making. So for instance, there's this common belief, and so many of us do this, if you have an important decision to make, Penny, I'm guessing you're like one of many people, you make a list of pros and cons, right? Mm -hmm. The research shows that doesn't actually help, that actually muddies the waters, it brings up irrelevant issues, and it just makes it harder for us to decide. And so I was going to write a book about these kinds of mistakes people make when they're making decisions. And I was talking about it with a friend who's also a psychologist. And he's, he kind of leaned in and he said, Therese, you know what would make a really good book on decision making? A book about gender and decision making. And I, and I said, well, why, you know, again, I was at that point, never studied gender. And I said, so why, why would that make a good book? And he said, it's a boys club. All the books about decision-making are written by men. And I go and I look on my bookshelves and sure enough, they're all written by men. Most of them were even written by Dan's. <laughs> that was kind of funny. There was a, there's Dan Ariely and Daniel Kahneman and Dan Heath. Anyway, um, I decided this is interesting. And, and I started thinking about what were the common misconceptions about women in decision-making. And there are so many about women's mm-hmm. intuition and women being indecisive and women being emotional. And I decided, okay, this is a good topic. And so I finally came back to studying decision-making on my own terms, on on a topic that really I, I discovered I felt passionate about. Okay, that's fantastic. So, and it's captured beautifully in your book. I loved your book, How Women Decide, Therese. It's really insightful. I love its evidence base, but it's also really practical. It's not, you know, just an academic tome. It's really helpful. So a lot of my listeners are leaders and managers or aspiring to be, and we all know how important decision-making is in leaders. Does decision-making really have a gender component when you started to do this research? It, it truly does. Uh, one of the big questions that motivated me around writing How Women Decide is this question. Is a, is a woman's experience making a big, important decision any different from a man's experience? And what I, what I discovered through my research is, yes, a woman's experience is very different from a man's experience. And it's not because women are inferior decision makers. It's not because they struggle with decisions more than men do. Um, when, it, when people face a big decision, whether it's at work or at home, we all struggle. Um, mm. gen, gen, gender doesn't make a difference there. We all struggle. Whether or not we admit we're struggling is a different question, but we, we all struggle. But there was an important reality that I discovered that many of us don't realize. And that was this. When a man faces a hard decision, he only has to think about making a judgment. But when a woman faces a hard decision, she has to think about making that judgment 
And she has to navigate being judged because mm. we tend to judge women as decision makers so much more harshly than we judge men. And so everyone needs tools for making good decisions, but women also need another set of tools. They need a set of tools for navigating all those critical judgments that they're likely to face at work. Interesting. So the experience might be, the process might be the same, but uh, the ex how women are experienced as decision makers and therefore how their judgment is judged is different. So is a woman's decision making scrutinized to a greater degree? It, it is. And so one of the things I like to say kind of jokingly, um, in the, at least in the United States, and I'm sure people have already figured out from my accent that I live in the United States, people like to say that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Do they say that mm. in the UK as well? Yeah, do, yeah. They do. Okay. So yep. so what's when it comes to decision making, a much more accurate statement, instead of men are from Mars and women are from Venus, an accurate statement would be men are from Mars and women are from a less respected part of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> because what we do as decision makers is very much the same as the way that men tackle decisions, but we're scrutinized and criticized for the same decisions um, in ways that men typically aren't. So I'll give you a brief example from the news. This is from a few years back. Uh, Marissa Mayer used to be the CEO of Yahoo, and she made a big decision just a few months into her job when after she'd become CEO to change Yahoo's work from home policy. Um, yeah, she and Yahoo announced that employees could no longer um, telecommute full time. And it's hard to imagine that right now, right? Because of uh, yeah. COVID, we can't imagine that this was ever the case, but this was back in 2013. And, um, and so many people criticized her decision and said this would be especially bad for working moms if you couldn't telecommute anymore. And she, for over two years, she made headlines. Um, Richard Branson, there were many people who criticized her for this decision to get rid of work from home policies. Yeah. And here's what's fascinating. Very few of us have heard that the CEO of Best Buy, another major company, not a tech company, um, a product company, Herbert Jolie, he made the same decision to get rid of telecommuting. Um, but when he made that decision, it only made business headlines. It didn't make national or international headlines. It only made business publications. And it only made headlines for a couple of weeks that he had ended Best Buy's Tele telecommuting program. Yeah. And it was fascinating that she got so much more criticism. So I looked at it a little more caref carefully. We, you know, I thought, well, maybe her decision at Yahoo, Mayor's decision affected more people. It didn't. Mm -hmm. Mayor's decision only affected about 200 people at Yahoo who were working from home, whereas Herbert Jolie's decision actually affected 4,000 employees who were telecommuting at that time. So he, his decision affected 20 times more employees than mayor's decision did. And again, still, it didn't get much attention. And I th and there were other factors that we can look at, like how long they were on the job. Amazingly, right. Penny, they've been on the job of both about six months. So it wasn't a matter of we're going to criticize yeah. mayor so because she's new. So you unpicked anything that might have brought this decision under greater scrutiny. And exactly. basically, they made the same decision, but she was judged for doing that. So what what's going on? I think it's a couple of things. I think, you know, one of the common stereotypes is that women um, are more emotional in their decisions and that men are more, are more analytical, that women go with intuition, whereas men will carefully weigh the data. And so the, even when okay. men and women so there's come... there's an assumption that women's 
are actually not as good decision makers as men in principle. Exactly, exactly. There'll be an assumption that that there's some mysterious black box that and it's, it's driven by emotions for women, whereas men, there must be a really good reason he came to that decision, right? And so women's decisions are scrutinized more than they are. I, I think that's at least one part of it. I think there are a yeah. number of other, I think in general, um, we aren't used to women leaders, not to the extent mm. that we are used to men leaders. And so we're going to scrutinize more whenever there's an, an unusual person on the scene. And, you know, certainly being the CEO of of a tech company, um, you know, was very unusual at that time. It's still yeah. unusual today. So I think yeah, there were a number sure. of reasons. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting. So you talked about women's intuition, just as I've never heard a man called Sharp Albert. I've never heard anyone really talk about men's intuition. So is women's intuition a real, is it a thing? It's so funny. I and, and that's a question I'll often ask when I'm in front of a, a group live. I'll say to the audience, have you ever heard of men's intuition? And nobody raises their hand. And I said, have you ever heard of women's intuition? And everyone raises their hand. Um, in the United States, there's even a there's a, there's a, a razor that's called intuition, a woman's razor that's branded intuition. So it's really, <laughs> it's really, uh, it's a pink razor, no less. Um, so it, 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 your question is a good one is, is there really, uh, is in women's intuition really a, a, a real thing? So if you look at the research, as, as I like to do as a psychologist, there's really two kinds of intuition. So one kind of intuition is being guided from the notion of that you're, you're going from your internal guidance. You're going from something that you can't quite explain, but it feels right. And, and that's what most of us think about when we talk about intuition, it's kind of your inner GPS mm -hmm. and your gut feeling, right? Um, and so one question we could ask is, are women more likely to go with a gut feeling that they can't explain than men do? And are men more likely to provide analysis? And there is research on this. There's one research yeah. team that looked at, at 32 different studies of, of gender and decision-making, and they found that 60% of the time, men were just as likely to make a decision based on intuition as women. Okay, so 60% mm. of the time, men and women will, you know, rely on intuition just as often as, as the other gender. So then you quickly do the math, right? And you're thinking, okay, Therese, so the other 40% of the time, it must be that women rely on intuition more than men. And that's mm. not what these researchers found, Penny. They found that 40% of the time, men were more likely to rely on intuition than women. In none of their 32 studies did they find that women weighed intuition more heavily than their data analysis. And I don't know about you, but this this fits with my experience mm -hmm. where I know so many women leaders who who will spend, who will be up late at night researching, researching, researching before they before they make a decision. I'm not saying that men don't go to those lengths too, but I don't know many women who just sit back and say, you know what feels right? I'm gonna yeah. do X, right? Yeah. <laughs> Instead. Especially the more senior you become, there's that whole exactly. visibility piece and needing to get all of your facts right and probably over overdoing that. So when you're talking to women and coaching women about confidence, and we'll talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit later in their decision making, where does their intuition fit then? Well, the way that I like to talk about it, and, and, I, and I find that people find this a very helpful, practical way to think about it, is to say, you, you can start with your intuition. And this is advice I give to both men and women equally. Start with your intuition. And then 
go gather data or ask your team, if you've got a team, go ask your team to gather data. Um, One VP of sales that I worked with, um, a woman, and uh, she was a rare woman in the sales division, but she was the VP of sales. The way that she would approach this is she would say to her team, okay, I have a spidey sense (laughs) um, that we should go with X, that we should do X. But here's what I, what I want you to bring me five pieces of data and by, and it's Monday. I want you to bring me five pieces of data by next Monday when we're going to have another meeting to discuss and make our final decision. So let's just, let's spend this meeting figuring out what five questions we need to answer. And then I want you to go find that data and we'll come back and we'll decide together. Is it the right decision or not based on the data? So she's letting them know I've got a hunch but I'm open to you proving me wrong, but let's figure out what would be the criteria for deciding we go with this or we cancel it. And um, it's really, it's, you know, that's a brilliant strategy because it's collaborative, it's decisive, and it's also showing transparency. My, here's, here's my process because there's an assumption that women are going with their intuition or, you know, basing a decision on emotion. It's especially important for women to be transparent about their decision-making process. I think it's more important than it is for men. Yeah. To really, to be quite deliberate and intentional about what you're signaling about the caliber of your decision-making, because it's not taken for granted. It's not assumed, whereas it may well be in senior male leaders. So yeah, we need to use our intuition, but as a starting point and then go get the data. That's a beautiful way to say it. Use it as a starting point because with men, uh, we're used to men leaders. And if a man goes with his intuition or, and they, and in fact, we wouldn't call it that. We'd call it going with his gut, right? There Mm -hmm. is what I often hear people immediately defend is, well, you know, He's been he he's been in this business for 20 years. He probably has he knows seen what he's patterns. Doing. He knows what he's doing mm-hmm. and he's seen patterns that he can't even articulate, but that he's relying on that data analysis, that internal calculation, complicated explanations for men that they don't attribute for women. Yeah. So that's when we look at that in this trade-off, uh well uh, evidenced in decades of social psychology about being agentic, which is what's required of your leadership, which is to be confident and and assertive and ambitious. When we need to be seen through as a gender role, we also need to be communal and nice and approachable and warm. Is this playing out as well, that while leadership is still imbued with primarily masculine attributes, women are likely to be disadvantaged because they're going to need to be more collaborative in their decision making? Does it make a difference to that? Again, it's that issue that I raised earlier about women have to navigate being judged. They're, they're, mm. they're expected to walk this tightrope of being warm and communal and collaborative, but also be decisive because we want that in our leaders. We want mm-hmm. them to cut through the complexity and tell us, here's the way we're going to go. So in the United States, there's a really popular phrase. It's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. Is yeah. that, a, is yeah, that yeah, something that's very similar? Much in the, yeah, very much. Very much. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's a really common notion that women are less decisive than men. And I think one of the reasons people believe that is because women are more collaborative. So there's there's lots of data and it, and it could just be because of social pressure. I'm not saying this is a pink brain, blue brain difference. Yeah. I think this might very well be because of social pressures. Um, women do tend to leave more input or tend to seek more input when they make decisions than men do. So studies have been done where you 
randomly assign a woman to lead a group of strangers and she will consult those strangers more carefully and more often than a man who's also assigned to lead a group of strangers. Right. In the real world, female politicians are more likely to involve citizens in budget decisions than male politicians. There's time and time again, you'll see that female leaders seek more input from their right. constituents, from the people that they're representing as a leader than men do. Um, but people assume that being collaborative and being decisive are mm. polar opposites. Yeah. If you're being, and especially with women, they'll assume she's being collaborative as a leader because she's not sure herself, Yeah, right? She's indecisive. Mm. She's indecisive. That's right. She's wishy-washy or she's, mm. um, she's doing a U-turn. Um, she can't figure out what she wants to do. And that you're asking someone else because you're not sure yourself. Mm -hmm. um, one one manager, I, I, I interviewed um, 34 women for How Women Decide. And and I love the story that one of the women told me. I'll, I'll call her Nina. Um, she, she was a manager in tech, again, an area where there aren't as many yeah. women. And she, she would describe what she called the last person who touched it problem. Yeah. So we talk about so yeah. the, the, the last person who left his office in the days when people had offices. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The last person who left his office. Exactly. That's just it. And, and so her observation was that when a female manager at her company had an important decision to make, people would line up outside of her door on the day the decision mm -hmm. was being made, just keeping poking in. Is anybody in there? Can I go in? <laughs> right. And, uh, and the notion was when I asked her, well, why would they line up? And she would say, because the assumption was the last person to go into her office, just as you said, that was going to be the decision that she made, that she was that mercurial about decision-making, yeah. that she would just go that with the individual last. individual could have that level of influence over their decision-making. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then I asked, of course, do you see people lining up outside of the male manager's offices on decision day? And she said, no, there were no lines outside of their door because people figure what's the point? He's going to do what he's going to do. And we'll find out once the decision is made. Oh. So very, what an extra tax for women leaders, yeah. right? That there's this, the, you know, you've got people competing for your time on a day when you really need your time to make an important decision. Whereas men have the luxury to just decide. People trust that he'll seek input if he wants it, that we don't. Anyway, I, I just find it fascinating. Again, it that gets is fascinating. This. And again, it, it speaks to that. Um, you know, that trade-off or that double bind. I mean, they're all sort of negative terms, but how skillfully we need to navigate. Because if we are not collaborative, uh, that comes with a penalty as a leader as well. But right. if we are, particularly around how that signals our decision-making, so much of the book is about how we talk to um, that double bind and how we navigate with skill Talk to me about stereotype threat and and how this plays out in decision making and maybe how women can protect themselves from it when making decisions. So I find that stereotype threat is one of these concepts that people often haven't heard of mm. unless they are work in the gender space. But if you haven't heard of this term, you're not alone. This is but the good news is it's been well studied. It's one of the most studied concepts in social psychology from the past 20 years. It's very well demonstrated. So those of you who have never heard of stereotype threat, listen up. This is really a helpful concept. So stereotype threat is the anxiety that you're about to live up to someone else's negative expectations about a group that you belong to. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So there might be some expectation that um, you're going to be bad at negotiations. That's some stereotype that's not true, but that can be a stereotype. And even if you don't believe it, you become preoccupied and anxious that you need to prove it's not true because you're concerned other people believe it. And so you're spending extra energy and time when you could, when you just need to negotiate well, you need to be spending your energy and time and your mental resources on the problem. Instead, mm-hmm. you're also trying to solve the problem of changing the perception that other people have. So I'll give a, a personal example of stereotype threat that I've seen in my own life. So for me, I experience stereotype threat around driving. There's a real um, negative stereotype that women in the United States aren't as good drivers as men are. <laughs> mm. um, and I have one family member in, in particular, one one older male family member who who very much believes this, that women aren't good drivers. And I love driving. I, I, I've always had stick shifts, manuals. I love to drive. I love sports cars. I, I consider myself a very good driver. But when he, that particular male, is in the passenger seat, (laughs) oh my goodness, I become so anxious about my driving. I I, I merge more slowly. I am much more cautious on the expressway, on the highway. Um, I would never attempt parallel parking with him in the car, right? Because I become preoccupied with his stereotype, even though I don't believe it and I know that I'm a good driver, I become anxious about proving to him that women are good drivers. And, and, but this plays out at work again, if, if you believe, you you know, there's a stereotype that women aren't good leaders in your organization, you're going to become anxious about that in the workplace and feel the need to prove yourself more. So it's, it's a real, it's a, it's an interesting problem that, that women run into. It's a very real problem. Are are there ways, um, how best to protect yourself from that, particularly when you're making decisions? Because as you say, there's this whole other burden that you're managing, which is managing yourself and your energy and your anxiety and, you know, what that does to your confidence, et cetera. So how might women manage that if they go? I mean, even knowing it's happening, I think helps, don't you think? Just awareness, insight into it is helpful. But then what are the specific, you know, tools that women can use to go, okay, this is happening now. This is how I might manage myself now. So there are a couple of things you can do, Penny. So one piece of advice that I have is there are things you can say to yourself. So what's really helpful, this has been demonstrated in research studies, is to reframe the anxiety. So you find yourself thinking, okay, wow, I'm the only woman in the room and people are going to think that I'm um, I'm wishy-washy in my decision-making. Reframe that anxiety. Say, this is a tough decision. This is a tough task. Anyone who faced this decision would think it's hard. And if I feel anxious, it's about some belief that has nothing to do with me. And simply reframing that anxiety as, this is a tough task, that's why I feel anxious, instead of thinking, I need to prove something to everyone in the room. So that kind of internal coaching of this anxiety, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that you're a bad decision maker. Just buckle down, you can do this, right? So reframing that anxiety as related to the task instead of who you are as a person can really reduce some of that pressure and performance um, anxiety. The other thing, the other thing, and this one's gonna seem like weird voodoo magic (laughs) because it seems so irrelevant. (laughs) We can do weird voodoo magic. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a trick that psychologists have found is incredibly powerful, but it's going to seem like how could that possibly work? So here's the thing to do. So 
let's say you're about to go into a meeting and you know it, stereotype threat is especially high when you're the only person of your group in the room. So if you're going to be the yeah. only woman in a meeting or you're going to be the only black person in a group of white people, mm -hmm. stereotype threat shoots way up in those situations. So let's say you know you're about to walk into a meeting um, and you're the only female partner who's going to be at this meeting in a, let's say at a law firm. So what you want to do that day before you walk into that meeting, sit down at your desk, at your computer and with a notebook and write for 10 to 15 minutes about one of your core values. It may not have anything to do with the decision. It may be, you know, my core value is, is taking care of my health and here are the different ways mm -hmm. that I take care of my health. So it's going to seem completely unrelated, but what people find, what researchers find is that by doing that values assessment, by writing about one of your values and how you live up to that value and how it's changed your life to have that value helps you recenter and it inoculates you from stereotype threat. You have a much clearer sense of who you are and why you oh, yeah. are that way. And so you're less influenced by what other people think of you. So it's a, um, this little values assessment can be incredibly helpful. I've done it before anxiety provoking situations and you just feel calmer and you're less concerned about what other people think of you because you've checked in with what you think about yourself. That's a great strategy because it, you know, the stereotype or identity threat um, just sort of gets grounded. I'm not actually, but this is who I am and this is why I'm doing this. And you don't get thrown around like flotsam around other people's expectations of you. Yeah, love it. So what about risk taking, Therese? Um, again, there's there's a you know a lot of uh, stereotypes out there about women being risk averse and perhaps how that plays out in their decision making. It is a popular stereotype. And, and if, if you don't mind, Penny, I'm going to suggest we use different language. So yeah. you're completely right that people talk about women as being risk averse and men as being risk seeking. And mm -hmm. I find that that's already a bad setup because exactly. everybody wants, you know, everybody wants to seek something. Nobody wants to be averse, right? <laughs> right. Yes. Um, so we even just the language puts favoritism on the way that we think about men and, and puts women one step down. So what I like to think about instead is ask the question question, are women risk alert? So are mm. men more risk seeking? Because risk alert sounds like a quality we would want to have. We yeah. want to be alert to And it's pretty risks. neutral. It doesn't mean it's exactly. a negative or a positive. It's just exactly. a, a positive. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can reframe the question like that. Mm. Are women more risk alert? Um, and this is uh, I actually published an article in The Guardian on this very topic. So there's a there's a great um, series of research studies by Mara Mather. She's a, a, a neuroscientist at the University of Southern California. And she was wondering, is stress part of this? Do, mm. do men and women approach risk differently when they feel stressed? Because she had a hypothesis based on animal research that that might be the case. Because they, there's plenty of research showing that um, male and female rats approach risk-taking differently under stress. So she wondered if this would, would be true in humans. Yeah. So first she put men and women in a low-stress situation where they had to make a series of decisions. And she found that men and women took the same number of risks. They seemed to analyze the situation the same way. Do I want to go, do I want to go with the, the risk or do I want to go with the sure thing? And basically she found men and women took the same number of risks as long as they were feeling very calm and relaxed. 
And then mm -hmm. she added stress to the situation. And she stressed people out in a number of ways. She would like make them dunk their hand into ice water, which creates a, a cortisol response in the body, makes mm -hmm. you very stressed out. Um, you know, we're talking about keeping your hand in ice cold water for like five minutes. It, your, your body has a, a huge stress it's response. Painful. Yeah. It's painful, exactly. Um, or she'd have people get up and give a talk in front of an audience that was clearly bored. <laughs> Again, <laughs> huge stress response. It's brutal. Public speaking is hard for all of us, but especially yeah. if you've got people who are people on their People are just phones. getting their phones out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. They're like, no, please let this stop. So she would put people in stress-inducing situations, and now she found, and then she would test them about 10 or 15 minutes later after the stress had stopped, but their body was still having a stress reaction, mm. and cortisol, she was testing cortisol levels. Sure enough, cortisol levels were high. And what she found is all of a sudden, men and women started behaving very differently. And what was fascinating is they behaved differently from their calm selves, and they behaved differently from the other gender. So first of all, um, men became much more risk-seeking under stress. They became interested in like, well, let's just throw caution to the wind. Let's just do it. I, you know, there's a big win. It's worth it. Like let let's go let's go for the you know the the, wow. the goal yeah. that's that's um, that seems like it's unreachable but maybe right now and so they changed their behavior they became risk seeking on average not every man but on general in general most men became more risk seeking and yeah. women did the opposite whereas women under calm conditions had been comfortable taking risks under stressed women suddenly went into protection mode they just wanted to go for the sure thing they took okay. fewer risks. They went for the safe options. So both mm. men and women behaved differently from themselves and differently from one another when their bodies were under a high cortisol load. So I find that really helpful because wow. um, it says to me that normally if things are calm, we're going to make decisions. We're going to weigh risks the same way. Men and women aren't different in that respect. But pe put people under stress, and yes, men and women do behave differently. And that, to me, Penny, is a strong argument for why we need men and women yeah. in the room when a key decision is being made. All too often, leadership yeah. teams are all men. And that is probably going to tilt things in the direction of making riskier uh, decisions. Risk, yeah, seeking. Risk seeking. How risk -seeking. interesting. So I find it telling, Penny, when you look at how countries responded in the early stages to COVID, and there have been a number of articles published where people will point out that women-led countries, countries that had prime ministers or presidents that mm. were women, took safety measures at the very beginning of COVID to, in, to reduce the spread of the disease. And as a result, they had fewer death rates, fewer infection mm. rates, whereas countries led by men, not, not every country, but on average, countries led by men waited longer to put sanctions in place or put fewer sanctions in place when they finally did put sanctions. And as a result, we see higher death rates. Um, you, you had more male-led countries being super skeptical of the, of, the, of the problem, that they waited longer because they said, oh, this is a hoax. Um, I happen to live mm -hmm. in one of those countries. <laughs> uh, but, but there is an interesting pattern there, I think, that we saw played out in real life where women leaders were taking a cautious approach. And obviously, at the beginning of COVID, throughout the whole thing, it's been was a very stressful situation for um, national leaders to make decisions yeah. about what, what lengths to go to. Absolutely. 
I think there'll be a lot of studies done on that, you know, from the classic men take charge and women take care. The fact yes. that so many, uh, that their their countries had such confidence in their women leaders doing that. You know, it's like they, they were absolutely playing to their strengths, which is women take care. And that's what their population wanted. They wanted these people to make them feel safe. Exactly. I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. I love that contrast of men take charge and women take care. Um, and this was an, a, a fascinating... And in the early we, days, people just wanted to feel safe. <laughs> exactly. They yeah. wanted to feel safe. They wanted to know that their leader was going to make make things as okay as they could be. And and mm. women leaders were more likely to do that at the beginning of COVID. So I think it's it's yeah. an example that across the globe we can all relate to. That's fantastic. So how would you summarize, Therese, the, the kind of women's decision-making playbook? What, what do we, you know, as there's some, you've given us some great tips, some great strategies and some wonderful insights into what's happening so we can navigate quite intentionally and not sort of crash around and wonder why our decisions are being judged differently. But what do we need to manage and what natural advantages perhaps can we leverage? So one of the natural advantages is that women tend to be more collaborative and it's an advantage because research shows that when decisions involve more diverse input better decisions tend to be reached so mm. the good news is is that being collaborative tends to be an advantage and women leaders are also judged less harshly when they're collaborative than when they're um, autocratic. When women make big decisions as leaders that are autocratic and they don't involve other people, if if something goes wrong with that decision, they're under much harsher scrutiny okay. than yep. men who make autocratic decisions and it goes badly. So it's 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 a double advantage to be collaborative in your decision making. One, you'll make better decisions, and two, if you make a bad decision, it'll be scrutinized less later um, because you involved people. So um, so. Take it, you know, the fact that if that's your inclination to be collaborative, lean into it um, and because you're going to make better decisions that way. But but point out, I think, a, a really savvy strategy that I heard from some of my women that I interviewed was that they would, again, make it transparent about what kind of collaboration they were seeking. So they might say... I'm going to take input on this decision until Friday, and then I'm making the decision next week, but no input mm -hmm. past Friday, right? So being very transparent. Or I need input from marketing and sales. That's the group that I need to hear from now. But you're being, you're framing explicitly to the rest of the group. Here's how I'm making the decision. Here's whose input I want. One, one engineer um, that I interviewed, a female engineer who led a large team, I love the way she did it. So her, um, I called her Erica in the book. What she would say to her team is she'd come into a meeting and say, okay, so management wants a decision yesterday. No surprises there. We're gonna mm -hmm. make this decision in this meeting today. You've already read my proposal. You know what I want to do. Does anyone see any reasons we shouldn't go forward with this? Is there something that I'm missing? And so she would spend that meeting asking the group, let's make sure we, we aren't making a bad decision. Anyone who sees anything at all that I've overlooked, I want you to bring it up now. Here's your chance. And so it was very clear that she was being decisive, and yet she was still being collaborative to, to, yeah. to let people know, here's your chance to opt in. I really want to hear from you. You're in this room because I know you have good insights and judgment. And, and she so, made the process really transparent. 
Exactly. She made it very transparent. She let them know the pressure is on. We've got to decide. I can't wait any longer on this. But at the same time, you, you might see something that I don't. So speak up now, please. So that's the advice that I would give. Make it transparent. And, and it's tricky to be collaborative and decisive at the same time. But it will pay off as a leader if you can do that. Really nice. Therese, thank you so much. Any final advice you would have for women leaders and aspiring leaders about how to be and be seen as really great decision makers? There's, there's one last piece of advice that I have, and this is true for men as well as women. Um, take it again, and it fits into this notion of being as transparent as you can be. And that is take your team through something that's called a pre-mortem. So this was popularized by Daniel Kahneman. Um, the notion of a pre, you, we all know what a post-mortem is, right? You've yeah. made the decision, it's a year later, the decision went well or it went badly, but now you're looking back. So a pre-mortem is something you do ahead of time. And so what you say to your team is, okay, everybody, it's gonna, let's pretend it's a year from now. We went with option A, we decided to do option A, and it turned out to be a, a total disaster. Take a minute, write down the story of what happened. Why was it a total disaster? And then you discuss what people's insights were. And there's research showing that people come up with something like 35% more specific problems mm -hmm. when they're told, imagine it's the future and you're looking back, than if they're simply told, what could go wrong? When people are asked what could go wrong, they're, they're, we're not very specific in our analysis, but if you have to imagine a future where it already went wrong, people mm -hmm. somehow, and, and psychologists don't quite understand this, but if you imagine the future and look back, people are, are much more specific and can tell a much more detailed story of what went wrong. And so this is a really clever strategy because A, it shows you're being collaborative. B, you'll probably surface things that you wouldn't have surfaced otherwise, which means you can now make a more informed decision. So I love that strategy, a pre-mortem. And people, you know, when I use it and when I've advised people to use it, they come back, they're like, Therese, that was brilliant. We've never had such a good discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And it's just framed so positively and, and futuristically as opposed to um, let's look for the faults, which, you know, gets our whole negativity bias inflamed and ready to look for what's wrong, which doesn't really make for great decision making anyway, because, you know, we should be making decisions about the future that are full of optimism and uh, clarity. I just love that, Therese. Anything else that you would advise aspiring uh -huh. women leaders? Uh, believe in yourself. I think one of the trickiest yeah. things, and you know, uh, there's so many studies show that that female leaders are more likely to doubt themselves than male leaders, and um, I tend to think of confidence as a dial. So go into go when you're when you're collecting when you're collecting perspectives and input into a decision, dial your confidence down. That's okay. You're 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 going to collect better information if you dial your confidence down in the information gathering stage. But once you make the decision, dial your confidence up, go in and say, mm -hmm. here's what we're going to do and project that because people are looking for your confidence at that point in the decision. Once it's been made, they want to they, they want to believe in you. And so that would be my other piece of advice. You know, think of confidence not as a hammer that you need to apply high confidence to every situation, but mm -hmm. dial it down when you're collecting information and when you've made your decision, you know, go in blazing. Go, go in yeah. with the confidence that you think you need. Love it. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today, Therese. It's been such a pleasure. Um, you know, as I said, I loved your book, How Women Decide. It's a great 
uh, opportunity for people to get both insight and really practical tips. So I wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today, Therese. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Therese Houston. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.